Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Burned by Books. Today's episode is a special one. The return of my first guest, Eleanor Henderson, the novelist, now turned memoirist, out with one of the most anticipated books of the summer, Everything I Have is Yours. The book, which she subtitles A Marriage, is the story of her lifelong love affair with her husband Aaron, which is bracketed and undergirded by an excruciating journey through the medical wilderness to try and understand his increasingly devastating physical and mental illness. To read Eleanor's memoir of dedication, despair, and survival is to be astonished by her gifts as a writer, while feeling the weight of her commitments, fears, and hopes as she refuses to let go of the love that she began when she was just a teenager. I cannot say enough about the deep well of tenderness that flows through this unsparing look at her own marriage. It is unputdownable, and as the writer Anna Solomon puts it, a book that champions radical acceptance as a means of beginning anew. You will be changed in the reading of it, and that is the most and best that can be said of any book. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burn by Books. What a privilege it is to welcome back Eleanor Henderson. To say that Eleanor is responsible for this podcast is no overstatement. She is my longtime friend and collaborator, and she was the first person outside of my house that I told about the possibility for this project. Her encouragement when I floated the outlandish idea of starting a podcast during the pandemic was fundamental in me in getting me to actually make something happen. I knew how lucky I would be to have her as my first guest. She is, after all, the author of two extraordinary novels, 10,000 Saints and 12 Miles Straight, and countless pieces of short fiction and nonfiction. But I also knew her warmth and wit would convince people to tune in and give the show a try. 
It did take me three canceled recordings to learn how to do the basic audio for the show, but once that was covered, she didn't disappoint. And still today, after 21 episodes, hers is the most listened to of the bunch. Google Analytics doesn't lie. Today, Eleanor returns with the most anticipated memoir of the summer, Everything I Have is Yours, the story of a romance begun in her teens which became a marriage complicated by her husband Aaron's enigmatic and persistent physical and mental illness. Everything I Have is Yours is written with Eleanor's trademark stylistic verve, at times lush and lyrical, at others bone-sharp and restrained. But the power of this story is in Eleanor's refusal to give up on her husband and lifelong companion, even when the complications to caring for someone whose illness and injury cannot be adequately diagnosed seem too much to bear for any one person. The story of Eleanor and Aaron's relationship from teens in Florida to her years at Middlebury College, living a full student life while already caring for a partner, and their marriage with children is forever backgrounded by Aaron's persistent and unidentifiable symptoms, his pain and his suffering, and his severe limitations as a partner. To read Eleanor's account of their desperate search for answers from doctors here and abroad is to understand, at the most elemental level, how little we truly understand about the relationship between our minds and our bodies, and how much the burden of care is shifted from medicine to intimate partners. At times, a thrilling page-turner, at others, a tightly drawn domestic drama, everything I have is yours refuses easy demarcation. Is it a tragedy or a triumph? By not labeling it as such, we see a woman committed to looking at her own story, apart from and intertwined with her husband's, to find the clarity of writing. What E.M. Forrester described as, how can I know what I think till I see what I say? The bravery of that act of seeing for herself charges this memoir with what feels like uncommon generosity and goodness. Thank you for being my first return guest, Eleanor Henderson. Chris, thank you so much. I love listening to your introductions of other authors, and that did not disappoint. And if my readers bring just a small portion of that open-heartedness and open-mindedness, I'll be very lucky. So thank you. Thanks, Eleanor. Would you um, be willing to start us off um, with a section from the book, uh, in particular, part of what is called Mercury Rising? Yes, Mercury Rising. The first day of October again. This year, in our new house south of Ithaca, it chokes the Forsythia fields with fog. Over the French doors in the bedroom hangs a Battlestar Galactica bedsheet. We have foregone, mirrored closet doors for hollow wood, and there is a hole in one of them the size of a fist. The day is spent sorting test kits on the kitchen island. Each comes in a little waxboard box, the instructions folded with a silky FedEx envelope inside. I would like to get a pair of pants made out of these FedEx envelopes. The blood will be shipped to California, the saliva to Illinois, the stool to North Carolina, the urine and more stool to the parasite lab in Colorado. It was better before when I didn't know what it was, Aaron says. We don't yet exactly know what it is. The test results will take weeks. But two months ago, Laura, the health coach, re recommended an herbal antiparasitic. Sage, clove, black walnut oil. How strong could it be? 
When we got home from his appointment, he took one drop of the foul-tasting tincture on his tongue. All night, all bad night, he sweated and swore and moaned. His nose ran, his head hurt, he was delirious with fever. He felt, he said, like he had the flu. Laura had warned us about Herc's symptoms, the painful die-off of toxic bacteria that often occurs after an antibiotic regimen has begun. Short for Jerish Herxmeyer reaction, named for two doctors who were in fact dermatologists. The same idea applied here, Laura said. Herx was terrible, but it meant the antiparasitic was working. It meant it had things to kill. When I emailed her Aaron's symptoms the next morning, she replied, I know it's going to be a road. Now, almost two months later, the Herx symptoms have eased, but still Aaron takes the tincture, three drops, three times a day, followed by an activated charcoal pill to absorb the toxins. For a week before the test, though, Aaron must abstain from it. He must allow them to infest him again, undeterred. He feels them crawling through his socks, through the pads of his thumbs, through his scalp. I see a worm, an inch-long, pink-gray, no wider than angel hair pasta worm, squirming in the bottom of the bathroom sink. Did it come from inside him? This I don't know, but it is unmistakably a worm. The health coach leads to the psychiatrist, a functional medicine psychiatrist, which is a thing, who works in the office across the hall, Dr. Pascal. Aaron hasn't seen Dr. Friedlander for six months after she went on vacation and he didn't reschedule an appointment. Dr. Pascal works as a team with Laura, the health coach advising us on the whole health picture, the psychiatrist writing prescriptions. Dr. Pascal is petite, middle-aged with a blondish pixie haircut and sleeveless shell blouses, and we go shoeless in her carpeted office, too. Aaron is nervous. He wants me to go in with him. Do you have an Ativan, she asks. When he produces his little silver vial, she says, just chew on one, honey, while we talk. She isn't sure if he has schizophrenia. She is pretty sure he has ADHD. Maybe, I think. She's kind and understanding and non-judgmental. She's the kind of doctor who wants to be on his side, them against the world. If we are in the world of stranger things, are we? And all of the other doctors we've visited so far are the white-suited Hawkins lab scientists who insist that no evil lurks under the surface. Then the health coach and the psychiatrist are Murray Bauman, the eccentric, Russian-fluent, conspiracy theorist, private investigator who's so out there he just might be right about the world. It's out to get you. They have that kind of outsider authority with better grooming habits. I'm not sure, though, if Dr. Pascal really comprehends the degree to which my husband is losing his mind on a biweekly basis. She re-ups his prescription for Ativan and Seroquel, and I write her a check for $225. She does not accept insurance on a glass coffee table. Down the street is a vegetarian restaurant where we eat lentil soup and tofu steaks and think thoughts of wellness, of spring, though it is fall. Aaron looks like he has been shoved over while sleepwalking and is trying to stand up. Thank you so much. Um, I chose this section because it captures both the beauty of your writing along with the constant collision between your relationship and a family growing and evolving and these never-ending and increasingly more expensive treatments for Aaron's profound sickness. The memoir presents Aaron's illness as inescapable. Little happens in your family that doesn't in some way involve his pain and his need for help. Did writing this book help you to understand that aspect of your life and to process it more fully? It did. 
in the way that I think only writing a book can do. You know, I had been um, so accustomed to this illness, these illnesses sort of taking up space in our lives. And, and as they grew and, and grew to take up more space, you know, I, I think my first instinct over the years was was to, you know, hide and deny the power that they had. And so deciding to write this book um, was, you know, first just sort of an act of admitting to myself um, that that it had become so unmanageable. And you know, I'm a writer, and so the tool that I have um, is language, and and I hoped that that language would give me a way to, um, you know, wrest some control out of and over a uncontrollable situation, and it did. You know, it did give me that distance. It gave me a container um, mm-hmm. and a a place to put all of those um, all of those feelings of you know distress and and um, and helplessness. Yeah, that metaphor of the container, I think, is really interesting and in thinking about a, a book. And I'm imagining that container aspect of it is both a really helpful solve. You can sort of pour things into it and it is in some way contained, but also, um, you know, a frightening permanence. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as I worked on the book and as the story, you know, began to take shape, I, I came to understand the sort of, um, catch 22 of, of that solution, um, you know, which gave me, a, I think, you know, inevitably a false sense of control because, um, part of what I was discovering in writing was that I had for so long, you know, believed that I had control over this marriage, my life, our story, and in writing it, you know, I was continuing to really practice um, that that sense of control or even sort of domination over the story, which, you know, writers do have. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I had at the same time to sort of let go of that control um, while I, I still had that container in front of me. It was still what I had to work with. And, and it, it sort of served its purpose um, during during and through the writing of the book. The narrative form of the memoir vacillates back and forth between various moments of your past together and something approaching our present moment. How did you decide against a chronological recounting of the marriage story? Were you conscious of wanting to unsettle and disorient the reader as an emotional mirror to what's happening in the story? I don't remember really deciding against a traditional form. You know, the form felt fairly traditional to me. And as somebody who, you know, was new to the memoir form, I, I sort of reached for what felt available to me. Um, but I did struggle to find the right container. And it seemed to me as I began writing more and more that I really needed at least a couple of, of strands in this braid, you know, that I needed um, what I came to understand as the mystery, you know, the front story, the present story, and then the history, mm-hmm. um, or the kind of root system of our relationship. Because, you know, one of the questions that people would ask me and that I'd ask myself is, you know, what, what's wrong with Aaron? And I would sort of joke to myself, like, well, do you have like a few hours? Cause <laughs> long story. Um, I'm not really sure is, you know, really the answer. Um, uh, and I really felt that it was difficult for me to pinpoint the time when it began, you know, there, there was in some ways a, 
a before and after, you know, a day where this um, rash appeared on his body overnight. Um, but that was only part of the story. You know, so many of the symptoms, especially related to mental illness, were really there, you know, lurking um, for a long time. And so I felt that I needed to move back and forth in order to really provide a full picture of, of the marriage and, and his illness. The public face of a, a marriage is the visible part of the iceberg with the vast mass of a couple's life together hidden beneath the surface. You have taken us below the surface, diving to the very depths of a marriage's hidden life. I found it incredibly brave, um, but I also imagine it leaves you feeling very exposed. How does it feel to publish the whole iceberg? Very exposed. You are right about that. Yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of doubts about the choice that I've made to write a memoir about my marriage um, from the time that I sat down to do it, but especially it, more recently as it's started to make its way into the world, you know, I have had these dreams, um, you know, that I'm like peeing in a public place or in a bathroom <laughs> with no walls. I'm just in, oh, a God. in the middle of the forest. You know, I'm definitely feeling <laughs> like I've um, exposed myself in a way that um, I sometimes have regrets about. But I, um, I try to remember, you know, that I, I wrote this book because I felt that I was, you know, I needed it to do it in order to survive. And, and also that reading other people's true stories about their lives has made me feel less alone. And I'm really glad that they made those choices and took those risks to expose themselves. So when I'm um, feeling like, oh, my God, what the hell am I doing? Um, uh, you know, I, I remind myself that I'm glad I live in a world where um, people are becoming more comfortable telling the truth about themselves because it's it's a lot to sustain the narrative that everything is is all right. I want to come back around to those to the memoirs that were particularly valuable to you or inspirations or models. Um, but I wanted to talk for a second about um, a moment in in the book that was very painful for me to read and and also I, I you know something that I, I can't imagine experiencing and and what it must have been like for you and which, is, a, is an example of how much a memoir can ask of the writer to, to put forward. It's a moment when your, your father's dying in your house, um, and you ask Aaron to give you the space you need to help your father pass and to grieve him. For a moment, it seems like that's going to happen, but soon Aaron's pain and anxiety runs over into that moment of grief. It is the kind of injury that happens in marriages all the time, in ways large and small, but it's rarely something we read about another's marriage. Did you hesitate in writing this scene, and was your driving motivation in writing this memoir of a marriage to tell everything? I didn't hesitate in writing the scene. In fact, I felt immediately in the moment that I had to write the scene, um, that the story was sort of writing itself at that point. And that was the really bizarre thing about working on a memoir as the story was unfolding, um, you know, that I would be experiencing a terrifying episode where my husband was not himself. And yet I knew that I would get to the other side because tomorrow morning I would be able to write about it. And, um, you know, it became sort of a joke with myself, like, well, this is going to be a great chapter. Um, 
And I, I felt that as horrifying as that day was, my dad was dying and Aaron was absolutely at rock bottom um, downstairs and unable to really control himself. And um, I was first and foremost worried that my brothers would see the state that he was in. And after it became apparent that I couldn't hide it, I did feel this sense of relief that I couldn't sort of keep the secret of his illness anymore. And, um, you know, so there was that sort of relief in the moment. And I also remember Aaron, as I was continuing to visit him downstairs while my dad was dying upstairs and he was having this suicidal psychotic episode downstairs, you know, he said to me, I think I found the ending for your book. And I actually had that in an earlier draft, but my editor encouraged me to sort of edit out the more meta parts of the book. But it it was um, funny to me even in that moment because I thought, uh, no, honey, this is not the end of the book. Like we are right here in the middle and this is, this is maybe the climax, but it's, um, it's, you were still very much, you know, far away from any ending that I would wish upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I felt that that was a moment that I needed, um, to write about because it felt very significant and, you know, and, I was trying to understand my life with with these two sort of narrative fronts, um, you know, the sort of mystery and the history. And they felt very much like they were colliding in that moment. So it felt important to bear witness to it. But that's not to say that I really included everything. You know, there were there were moments, there were episodes that I did decide not to include in the book, believe it or not, (laughs) Um, you know, because for one thing, there are only so many chapters that we need in a number of urgency room. Um, and also that I felt I needed to, um, you know, protect some of the more, uh, the, the more tender moments, um, for, for myself and for Aaron and our family. So it, it feels like an iceberg in a certain way and it's most of the iceberg, but, um, there's still some sort of sediment at the bottom that I kept for myself. That, um, aspect of tenderness is something that I don't want, um, listeners to miss because I feel like as much as this is a story that has a lot of, uh, of tragedies within it, um, of the moment and, and longer term, it's impossible to read the book and not admire the love story that persists through the struggle. There are moments in which yours and Aaron's lifetime of dedication to one another shines through. In particular, the moment after you return from Vermont, having traveled to see family alone, and he tells you, you make me feel like a person. The love suddenly breaks through in this fundamental way, which feels like salvation. Is is this perhaps the primary thing we should ask of love, that another sees us as a full person, even at our very worst? Yeah, I love that um, definition or theory of love. I, I do think that that that's um, right. And thanks for highlighting that moment, which um, did mean a lot to me because, um, you know, we didn't always see each other as full people. I don't think I always saw Aaron as a full person myself. You know, there were times where I thought he was a problem, not a person. And um, so to be told that, you know, that I, that I made him feel like a person meant a lot to me. And I think that, you know, as we sort of crawled our way out of this toxic codependent um, uh, way of relating to one another, um, you know, we we had the distance to see each other and and to accept each other. Um, 
but not necessarily to know each other fully, right? To see mm-hmm. someone as a mm-hmm. person, I think it's not necessarily to know them, right? And that no. had been the driving instinct was to to understand this illness in in every aspect to be able to fix it, and um, and seeing him, you know, as a full person, maybe was the thing that helped me to accept that I might not ever fully know him and um, that this was enough. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, that aspect of, of the fundamental nature of our relationship to others being that we can't know them fully, I think is something that m- memoir for some e- eclipses. And it says here, you know, I can, I can know this person or this life because I can I could bring it out in this full way in language but I think what your book does really beautifully is it doesn't pretend that you're going to know Aaron completely because nobody knows their intimate partner completely but that by striving to know his experience, um, to not only to empathize, but to sympathize with his experience of the world, that even in the not fully knowing, that the struggle is a powerful kind of love. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And it reminds me of that Judith Butler quote that I include at the end about about knowing one, one another and you know, the, the sort of um, imaginary vows that I rewrite for us at the end, mm-hmm. we might ask each other, can I know you? And the answer might be, sure, you can try, <laughs> you know, that trying to know each other um, is a pretty good recipe, I think, um, for marriage. I agree. So this is an entirely new kind of artistic project for you. Uh, what are the differences in the process between writing a novel and writing this kind of memoir? And can you talk a little bit about how the moves in the creative process came about from inspiration to writing to publication and now to events and publicity? Yeah, it's felt so different. And, you know, I feel grateful for having this experience, which I never really dreamed for myself. You know, I never went about um, wanting to write a memoir until I was writing one. And um, it's felt very different. You know, my my process is quite similar. And, you know, my habits are similar. You know, I still um, managed to write a a first draft that I think was exactly 540 pages, which is true of both of my novels. Really? That's so, amazing. Yeah, I go long and then I have, I need an editor to help me cut back. So, you know, some of those sort of habits um, were the same. You know, I, I woke up early on most mornings to write before my family woke up. And um, I sort of relied on those rituals and relied on the sort of you know, uh, faith in the fact that I'd written a book before and I could get to the end before. And so those things, you know, in some ways were easier. And also what was sort of easier was that I, I had my material, right. And, and the process was really just about how to organize it and rather than, um, you know, having to invent it, how having to imagine it from scratch. And so it was, uh, an act of shaping and selecting, um, more than sort of growing the material. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an interesting thing to do and notice, you know, I felt that I always would have something to say. It was a matter of when and where and how. Um, and you know, then one of the things that was really valuable to me in writing this book was that I had a really trustworthy editor, um, the editor from, um, my second novel, the 12 miles straight Megan Lynch. 
And um, she was with this book from pretty early on in the process. And having her faith in it was really important um, because I hadn't written a memoir before and I felt terrified um, by the prospect both of, of actually putting it on the page and then putting it out into the world. And um, I had also had her um, from early on in the process with the 12 Mile Straight. But with that book, I felt like I really needed just to get to the end before I wanted to share it with her because it was revealing itself to me in a way that felt like I needed to see the whole thing first. But with her, I really I had these um, pretty frequent check ins where she helped me stay, um, stay the course. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And as it's starting to make its way into the world, I have really relied on the wisdom of other memoirists who assure me that my terror is um, not unique. And also, you know, that um, there are these sort of stages of fear and acceptance um, and that I've been interested to see that a lot of my fear about this book coming out into the world was process during the period where I was um, going through um, the copy edits and the first and second pass pages, you know, where it felt like those were the last chances to really make changes to this book. And so I did make changes, you know, I did mm-hmm. side as I was reading back through the book, um, I don't need to include this person, or I don't need to include this person's real name, for example. And, and I also at that point had conversations with people who were in the book, um, that part was really difficult, you know, writing the book was um, really liberating in some ways, but then having to engage with the fact that it would be a, a real thing that might have an impact on people was pretty scary. But having those conversations um, with people to let them know that I'd written about them and to ask their permission um, was actually really, really rewarding. So um, there have definitely been some parts of the process that I, I didn't anticipate. As much as this is a marriage story, it's equally a story about the enormous failures of the American medical system to care for those it cannot efficiently or effectively explain as sick. As you and Aaron pursue treatments and evaluations from both more traditional Western doctors and what we might call fringe medical speculators, you are both infantilized and overinvested with agency in self-treatment. Both sides of this medical system seem unable to balance the need for respectful care of patients without immediately comprehensible illness and the patience and honesty not to offer certainty about a cure-all or an absolute way of living that will clear the symptoms. Were you ultimately able to find a balance in the kinds of medical care Aaron was able to receive? You know, I think we did our best to find that balance in the system that you described so well. Um, but it is a balance, right? I mean, we really felt that we needed both the sort of Western traditional American um, system that we have um, and and another way, you know, another um, alternative, holistic, naturopathic, Eastern, whatever you want to call it, um, sort of path. Um, and both, you know, provided some contributions to us and um but both were really insufficient as you're as you're saying you know one on the one hand you know no no one has a meaningful relationship with a doctor who they see for 10 minutes at a time you know and um that's very true that was you know really a sad sad thing to come to accept um and on the other hand um 
seeing a doctor who you can see for more than 10 minutes is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly prohibitive. Um, it's, it's no way to, to carry on either. And so, and even in some of those cases, you know, where we were able to make connections with doctors outside of the traditional system, they were imperfect, you know, they were imperfect and, and we didn't have the same sort of, um, markers and guardrails, you know, that made us safe and, the traditional system, despite its flaws. Um, so, so they're, they're both incredibly imperfect. Um, along the way we met doctors, um, who, um, really seemed to care about Aaron's health and well-being, but the system itself really was not equipped to care for people with complicated illness. Um, and what you say about, you know, the patients and honesty not to offer certainty, you know, that was actually one of the most valuable things we happened to get that probably most from a neurologist of all things, like a, a fairly traditional neurologist who pretty late in the process, um, I write about this in the book, you know, was really frank with us about, um, about, uh, the likelihood of us not um, being able to figure out what it was he was suffering from. And by that point that it was clear to us, but it was also was just very refreshing, um, to hear from a doctor that, um, you know, he was more concerned with with Aaron being able to to navigate that reality than um, than with giving him, you know, sort of sending him on to the next uh, specialist, which was which was what happened more frequently. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's such an uncommon story in American medicine. There's always the holdout hope for the definitive, mm-hmm. um, and you're always given like a little bit of a spoonful of that hope with each thing. And, and maybe it's a, a medicine, a surgery, a specialist, and that I think can be very defeating. And, yeah. you know, what it's clear in, in my reading is that, you know, the, the need for actual care and care not being equivalent to um, offering a diagnosis was so um, urgent with you and Aaron, and yet so hard to come by. Yeah. Um, and it was it was devastating to read because it was it felt like it was not a singular story in that case. This was stopped being a story about Aaron and started being a, a tragedy about American health and and the failure of care. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like your um, your journey through the medical um, world offers anything like a roadmap for others in this impossible bind between knowing their loved one is ill and finding only disbelief from the medical community? Yeah, I don't know that it offers a, a roadmap for others. I mean, I certainly wouldn't recommend others following a particular path. <laughs> yeah, roadmap is the wrong term. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's a it's the right question in the sense that it it reflects you know what we um, what we expect from doctors and you know our expectations were um, were not aligned with what we could actually be be granted um, and that's you know the fault of the sort of grander narrative about medicine and health and and mortality you know that there's always a solution, that there's always um, some answer. And Aaron was far ahead of me and and accepting that there might not be. And in fact, you know, I don't want to spoil the book, but it was his acceptance that we might not find an answer that ultimately um, gave me the most relief. So I wouldn't recommend that people follow our path if they could get to that 
point of accepting things as they are, as painful as it is. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have been able to take that advice from anybody seeing the distress and pain that my loved one is in. But um, but I, I think what you're describing is really common. Um, you know, a, a loved one loving somebody who is ill and and facing disbelief from the medical the medical community. It's incredibly incredibly maddening. And I see um, I see folks trying to strike this balance between um, traditional and non-traditional medicine in lots of different realms. You know, I have a friend who is um, uh, dealing with treatment for uh, colorectal cancer in Florida. And she's a fairly conservative person who one would think would be very much in line with, uh, with Western uh, medicine. And yet she has seeing a functional medicine health coach, you know, and she's gotten more from that, that relationship, you know, than she could have gotten alone, I think from her, um, her, uh, uh, cancer doctor. So, um, so I think you're right that a lot of people are dealing with the same, same questions and, uh, I, you know, and short of an entire uh, uh, rehabilitation of, of the system, um, I think, you know, the best we can do is try to navigate it without, um, without harming each other. One of the kind of driving mysteries, uh, enigmas in, in the book is the, the inseparability of Aaron's mental health from his physical symptoms, symptoms that range from the belief that he has insects or parasites on or under his skin, causing him to scratch incessantly, and uh, general malaise that causes him often total body pain that's excruciating. Some of the traditional doctors that you see um, look at Aaron's condition as entirely an issue of mental health, while others suggested everything from the highly controversial Morgellons disease to a form of long-haul Lyme disease, um, which, you know, living in Ithaca is is something that you hear stories and, and personal narratives about all the time. It was clear to me that you believe fully that Aaron has real pain and suffers physically in ways that are undeniable. How do you think his mental health fit into that equation for you? Well, that was one of the driving questions of the book. Um, and I know I had doctors ask me that while Aaron was sitting next to me in, in um, exam rooms. And you know, the answer was often, well, that's the question, you know, that's what we were trying to figure out. And, and that's what Aaron was trying to figure out, too. You know, he knew that he was um, suffering in, in um, ways that were psychiatric as well as um, medical. And, you know, it, it it's a false binary, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but, it, but it was, I didn't see um, quite how clearly the, the binary was, um, you know, not serving us. Um, until I was sort of deep into the process. So, you know, I think the mental mental illness drives physical illness and vice versa. And, you know, there are other authors who have done a beautiful job in describing how the, the demoralization of uh, chronic illness can lead one to be really depressed and suicidal. But there are also ways in which, you know, anxiety can um, provoke paranoia about one's health. And it was really a vicious cycle. And, um, you know, I hesitate to be able to um, 
provide a clean and clear diagnosis for for Aaron's mental health or for his physical health for that matter. You know, I, I have some sense, I have some guesses that I think are pretty good educated guesses about um, what his diagnosis might be. But, you know, as we learned again and again, that a diagnosis is just a kind of collection of symptoms, you know, that we use to organize people into like categories. And it it was always a relief to me when doctors would sort of recognize that he was outside of those categories, you know, mm-hmm. and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He was diagnosed with delusional parasitosis. He was diagnosed uh, with ADHD, you know, and, and those always, I would always say, you know, okay, sure, maybe I, I can work with that. But it was th- those folks who actually acknowledged the full complicated um, picture, you know, there was one doctor who said Aaron had too much fire, <laughs> another who called him mm. a hot mess. Uh, one psychiatrist called him an outlier. And each time I thought, yes, you know, let's put that on the medical form. That's so much more accurate yeah. <laughs> than so effective disorder or whatever it might be. Um, so but, uh, know, too much fire was at one point maybe a title or a subtitle for, for the book? It was, yeah. For a long time, I thought about too much fire. Um And it seemed to me to encapsulate a lot about, you know, how it felt to be married to a person with this complicated illness. Um, And it seemed to describe his his symptoms to me in a way that felt true. Um, But this other title seemed to to present itself and to be a little bit more appropriate. Right now seems to be you know, for lack of a, a, a better name, a Simone Biles moment with mental health, where instead of what we might have imagined, which would be a kind of casting down aspersions upon Simone for making the choice to pull out of most of the events of the Olympics when her both mental and physical health were in danger. Instead, there seemed to be largely, not totally, but largely a coming to her um, side and standing by her um, and saying that, in fact, this was a as heroic or more so than any seeking of an Olympic medal for a physical feat. And I wonder if you think that maybe there is some hope in that um, moment, or perhaps it, you know, that those partners who are caring for people with profound mental illness might feel less like they have to live in the shadows. Yeah, I do think it's a hopeful moment. You know, I, I'm sure that Simone Biles received uh, a good deal of hate mail, um, as well as the um, affirmations that she received. Um, but in my circles, you know, certainly there was a lot of affirmation and pride in the choice that she'd made. And it was really um, lovely to see. And and as you're suggesting, I don't know if we would have seen it, you know, 10 years ago. And, you know, just the sort of mental health literacy that I think um, many of us are familiar with now is, is so much more um, developed than it was Um especially, you know, working in higher education, I I teach a class called narratives of mental illness. And, you know, more than half of my students um, often uh, identify as having a mental health condition, um, pretty openly. Uh, So there's an openness, I think, um, that uh, people have that that feels pretty new and pretty important and exciting. And, um, and I, I'm glad that 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 is um, a kind of awareness that is um, opening up at a moment where I'm publishing this book. 
Yeah, I am too. And I hope that your, your book will be part of that conversation. I'm going to ask you a question that you might be uncomfortable with, and you should feel free to balk at it. I think the title is perfect, um, the one that you chose. Everything I have is yours. It is indeed the overwhelming ethos of the memoir, that you sacrifice everything in an act of supreme love and loyalty to your husband. I'll be honest, many times while I was reading this book, I felt like it was too big of a sacrifice, too much for you and too much for your family. Is that buried within the title, somewhere in the DNA of the memoir, or is it a simple statement of fact that you are willing to give everything to the man you've loved for most of your life? Yeah, that is a tough question, but you know, I think it's a fair one. I think it's one that the book invites um, and one that I would probably ask as a reader. And, you know, the title um, is, I think, the right title because for me, it feels quite layered. You know, um, the song by Billie Holiday, um, at least she recorded it, Everything I Have Is Yours, um, when it was our song, when we first met. Um, I really did read it very literally. You know, I had grown up mm-hmm. with these um, ballads about, you know, the totality of love. Everything I do, I do it for you. You know, I have nothing yeah. if I don't have you. And so I thought, great, I've got my song now and I have this person that I can um, put all of my being and my love into. And, you know, we've come to recognize through recovery, through um uh, you know, our own evolution that, um, it's not actually a great way to, um, sustain a marriage, you know, that you can't actually give everything that you have to somebody else. And, and yet it's a really nice sentiment, you know, and there, I think there's something very powerful, um, about being at least at moments, right. To give all of your love and attention to somebody. You mm-hmm. can't do that really over a lifetime. Um, but you know, this question of like how much is too much sacrifice, um, you know, again, I think I would uh, ask the same question um, of this book, and it's one that I ask in the in the book itself. You know, I guess I would hope that um, readers wouldn't spend too much energy sort of you know, measuring the sacrifice that I've made or that Aaron's made, for that matter. You know, he made sacrifices of his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really sort of like looking at the yardsticks that we use for measuring sacrifice, you know, um, thinking about how it is that we understand um, what it means to give too much of yourself away. And, you know, we we do do that. And I, I was doing that for a long time. Um, and there was a time where I decided I couldn't give any any more away. And and then that you know, yardstick grew a little bit. (laughs) And, you know, I determined that I had a little bit more to give. Um, So, you know, I think everybody has um, a different way of identifying what's too much for them. Everything is too much (laughs) that I have learned. Um, But I also have learned that I've had some some resources that I didn't know I had. One one of the difficulties of writing a memoir like this, especially uh, about a marriage, is that readers feel very comfortable making judgments about your personal life. How do you approach reviews that claim to know best how you should live your life? Yeah, I haven't encountered too much of this yet, but um, I expect to, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of approach those reviews with this mindset that 
you know, I'm as judgmental as any other reader. At least that's one of my instincts. Mm -hmm. And um, I hopefully can overcome those instincts when I'm really thinking generously about a book. Um, but you know, again, I think this is a book like many that invite, um, readers in, you know, and, and, uh, you know, with that sort of intimate portrait comes, um, you know, people who are living in the living room of your brain. Um, so, you know, I think, I think, you know, some of the advice I've gotten from other memoirists is, you know, that publishing a memoir can be very clarifying and that, um, you know, it helps you determine what and who is important to you. And if there are people who think that they know best, what, you know, what's best for me? I don't know. Maybe they do know. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I can I can thank them for their opinion. And um, I, I have my own and and, you know, already the voices that are um, grateful for for the story have been louder than the ones that are just interested in giving me homeopathic uh, recipes for gluten free diets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to get a mountain of those, I have no doubt. Um, but you can you can relegate those to the to the backwaters of the internet. Right. Um, do you think there's a chance that that Aaron, um, who, as you said, does make extraordinary sacrifices uh, in this book and and just in in a life that has um, caused him a lot of of pain as well as joy? But do you think there's a chance that he might take comfort in the opening of his story to the world where others might benefit from understanding his struggles, especially knowing that they're not alone. I'd like to think so. You know, I'd like to think so. He has told me that he doesn't want to read the book at first. That was really hard for me to accept. You know, I thought, what do you mean? You're not going to read the book. It's for you. It's about you. Um, but you know, again, he was always a few steps ahead of me in terms of not needing to have, all of the answers and insight, not needing to know, you know, every thought that I have about this experience. Um, so I, I do hope that, you know, this will be um, a part of our lives that um, will bring him, you know, some comfort and, and maybe surprise him and connect him with others right now. I think he's feeling um, like he needs to protect his privacy more than anything, you know, which I really respect. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a big sacrifice giving me permission to, to write and share this book with the world. I can't quite predict, you know, how it's going to um, echo back to us. Um, but I, I just hope we can continue to um, navigate it together. I hope and we'll come back only in, in good ways. You you mentioned previously um, drawing on um, certain memoirs and, and marriage stories as you were writing Everything I Have is Yours. Um, would you share some of those texts that were inspirations to you? And would you talk a little bit about what you're reading right now that takes you elsewhere and makes you glad for literature in all of its forms? Sure. I have a lot of um, titles in mind. Um, as far as marriage stories goes, um, The Argonauts, of course, is a really groundbreaking memoir about long-term relationships from Maggie Nelson. Um, Hourglass by Danny Shapiro, A Hundred Names for Love uh, by Diane Ackerman, um, which is also about um, caring for um, somebody with uh, difficult illness. Um so those were important to me just to know that there was a kind of, you know, genre in place. Um, and our illness memoirs were, um, 
incredibly helpful to me in thinking about, you know, what it is we expect out of a story about a disease um, and, and, and books about um, depression and mental illness, too. So one book that I don't think gets nearly enough attention is uh, a book called Willow Weep for Me, A Black Woman's Journey Through Depression um, by uh, Mary Nana Amadankwa. And uh, it came out in 1998. She's a Ghanaian-American writer um, who was based in L.A. at the time of the writing of the book. And, you know, I think about um, somebody like Simone Biles um, or Naomi Osaka who have, you know, um, been seen as these uh, black women who have to be strong and stoic. Um, and this is exactly the sort of, you know, narrative and stigmatization that Donk was writing into and about, uh, 20 plus years ago. She has so much to say about the sort of connections between, um, depression and trauma history and addiction. Uh, I really recommend that book to folks who don't know her work. It sounds incredible, especially yeah. having come out in 98. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's pretty remarkable. Um, and then just two books that uh, probably more readers know, um, but that were, you know, literally open on my desk as I was writing this book, um, and that I was in fact anticipating in the writing of this book, and then um, really kind of spoke into the process, um, were Esme Weijun Wang's The Collected Schizophrenias and Porichista Kakpur's Sick, um, both of which contend with complicated intersections of chronic and mental illness, both um, were diagnosed with chronic Lyme, um, Wang with schizoaffective disorder, and um, Portista uh, Kakpur with a number of uh, ailments, including dependency on some of her painkillers. Mm. Uh, and so just, just sort of knowing that these were folks who were trying to um, understand their own bodies and, um, and illnesses um, alongside me made me feel um, like I wasn't doing it alone. So... I'd really recommend those. Yeah, this list, I think, feels like a wonderful library for people who may be searching for these stories to to feel like they have someone to read alongside their their own life. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm reading now that takes me elsewhere, I don't know that this is taking me to um, <laughs> to a better place. But, <laughs> uh, I have to admit to you that I just finished um, C.J. Hauser's Family of Origin, which I probably should have read when she was a new voice visiting our festival <laughs> years ago. Um, but because she had was sort of a late addition to our roster, I didn't read her whole novel when she visited. And I just did. And wow, I really wish I read it in 2019 when it came out, um, because it just feels so important. Um, you know, you shared with me that so many of the authors on your podcast recently have talked about the centrality of the climate novel in yeah. our literature today. And, and that is a, the climate novel that I think is so, so beautiful and so important in part because it's, um, you know, telling this grand story about imminent demise of our planet and how we can do, you know, less harm to it and to each other. Well, it's also this really intimate, you know, dysfunctional family drama yeah. uh, that really doesn't leave a stone unturned in terms of like these, you know, the ugly sides of our human hearts. Yes. Um, I found it so beautiful and funny. And and there's this sort of narrative voice that is 
you know, while the characters themselves are like really terrified and panicked about the end of the world, they are uh, the narrative voice is so patient and omniscient and assured. Mm. And I just think it's a voice that we all need to confront this coming crisis. And so CJ Hauser's work, and she has this collection of essays coming out soon called The Crane Wife, which I'm really excited about too. Well, you should have written the initial review um, for that book, because that is a beautiful encapsulation of a book that I truly love and agree with you entirely, that it is a narrative voice for um, the urgency of climate fiction right now. And I hope everyone who hasn't already read it will, will run out and get it. Eleanor, thank you so much for being my first ever return guest. And it was such a pleasure to talk to you about this amazing book that I know is going to have a transformative life out in the world. Thank you so much, Chris. I feel really lucky to be talking to you about it. And thanks for having me back. Take care. Well, that's all for today's episode. An enormous thank you to Eleanor Henderson. Today is her publication day, and I hope that you will run to your local independent bookstore and buy a copy of Everything I Have is Yours. You'll find Eleanor's recommendations on the website at burnedbybooks.com, where you can listen to previous episodes, find recommendations, and learn about new and forthcoming books. Next episode, I will be welcoming the novelist Dana Spiata, whose newest novel, Wayward, is going to move to the very top of your must-read pile. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs> <laughs>